Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Let me just get this in the back Sorry, James. Let's just make this a little, lower, a little, a little taller. Um, great. Wow, it's filled up. When I look back when we first started, we were a little bit uh, spotty. It was awesome. To um, as my wife, there she is. Um, kids, uh, Tristan is nine years old. Addie is seven, and they love each other. They do. They're best friends. This might come as a shock to you, though. Sometimes they find themselves at conflict. Just sometimes. In fact, uh, Addie looked at her brother just yesterday, and I got her permission to share this. She said, I love you, Tristan, but sometimes you can be really annoying. <laughs> the brother has a habit of being harsh and um, quite quite disrespectful with his attitude and words toward her at times, and she becomes a parent proxy at times, uh, telling him what is going on and how he should behave. And in these moments of conflict, uh, not, not in your house, right? This doesn't happen. This is just us. In their, in their moments of conflict, each of them is fixated on their own desires, right? They're all, they're, they're himself and herself, not in each other, not, not on the other, right? Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? They, they, stop, they stop listening to each other. And, they're the f- and, and instead, they, they fight for their voice to be heard. And usually get louder so that it can be heard. Well, these are two people who love each other, right? I mean, they're, they're young, yes, but they're growing up to each other, with each other. And that, and that love, though, is sometimes plagued by their own wants and desires. So in conflict, Addie and Tristan, we... We lose the plot. Well, what's the plot? To love each other. To treat the other as we would want to be treated, right? To be heard, to be respected. And yet, our selfish desires overtake our thoughts, overtake our words, our actions. Things can get... ...don't recognize the other person. So we through the book of James practical implications that we can apply directly to our lives, right? This short book of the Bible, it's got our number. It's, it calls us out on our stuff, doesn't it? Struggle, at least I do. Some of these things in practice. This book has my number. James 1. Of, I've seen it earlier in this series, but it sums up the book well. It's just saying, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Just do what it says. In essence, this is the theme of James, right? If you really believe the message of Jesus, what kind of life is that going to produce in reality, on the ground? And what kind of community will that create? I want to spend some time on relationships. And we were talking about conflict. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about community. We're talking about us, right? Community. So this week, we're in the middle of a three-week journey. Kicked us off last week. In the fourth chapter, and uh, we can handle conflict well. How to handle conflict well. And of course, this topic is applicable to all relationships. But here, James is referring to conflict within the church, among those who share the same faith. Now, if you're not yet a Christ follower, I'm so glad you're here. Putting back the, the layers, well, the doors of the church, uh, the people who believe in and profess to follow 
Jesus. And we're getting real. We're getting real about what it means to have real faith for real life. Well, last week, uh, we looked at the source of this strife, uh, the source. Where does this conflict come from in our relationship? Uh, he's clearly upset about the fights that are going on in the church. He's upset. And, and he's basically uh, showing them and telling them that the, the church is, is, you're trampling the one thing that God one thing that the church is trampling on. We find it in John 17, in something that, that, that Jesus prays in the hours before his death. And I, I'm putting it up on the screen before we pray, before we get into James itself, because I think it's a really helpful uh, backdrop. He's praying for the unity of those who believe. Verse 20, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And Jesus is saying here, the number one tool I'm giving you to show the world who I really am is your love for each other. And they're blowing it. We blow it. Why? The source of conflict comes from within. The inner desire morphs into a, a demand. And then we put whatever that is above, in place of, instead of our relationship with God. Relationship with God. Discontent leads to quarreling, and then we see we see verse 6. But God, he gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's, that's where we pick up today. That's where we pick up today. This verse, chapter, uh, verse 6, it's one to keep in our minds. We're going to pick up from verse 7, but I, I want to keep 6 up there too because it's the cause of today's passage. So let's pay attention carefully, shall we? And, and, and perhaps we'll learn how humility leads to peace-filled and lasting community. How humility leads to peace-filled and lasting community, even in conflict. So let's read, and then we'll pray. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Now, Jesus, when, when so much in this world is competing for our attention, may your words ring true today above it all, above the din, above the noise. And may it be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. With all the things competing for our attention, may you just be the one speaking this morning. Father, let us find peace in our hearts to hear you. And may the, may the enormity of your love and your presence 
Fill this place, Spirit. Amen. Okay, so four whole verses to look at today. All of them are hinged on a therefore. Let me just put that up on the screen, please, Angie. Therefore, in the verse 7, there's a therefore. So it's obviously verse 6. It's hinging off of what, what he, just, he just finished saying in verse 6. And it's, it's about, you know, God giving grace to the humble. So therefore, and now, we are, now we're on the edge of our seats. Like, what do we need to do? You know, what, what's, what's, the, what's the effect? What's the effect of this? And, and every verse that we're looking at today begins with a verb, too. You notice that, too? Every, every verse begins with a verb, so they're a command. Oh, there it goes back to the James thing. It's so hard for us to, oh, sometimes it's just, wow, it's got our number, but I'm not so sure I want to do this. They're commands. They are. Let's not you know, call them anything else. They are telling us to do something. So this is a, this is a passage we can quickly break down. And, and, and let's use, lose, use a food analogy. Why not? We had burgers last night, so it was on my mind. Is Let's use the humility burger. I, I'm going to call it a humility burger. Indulge me for a moment. This is like James is saying, do you, do you want to know the only path to a right life in the midst of strife? Well, here you go. Served, made possible only on a plate of grace. On a plate of grace, verse 6, right? Then there's the bottom bun. Submit to God. It's foundational. Like, just submit to him. Then there's the, the filling, the, the meat, the stuff in between that, that gives it taste if you chew it, kids, and swallow. This is, this is the how. That's the, the, the inside, the filling. Then you've got the, the top bun, right? The, the, the outcome, the cherry on top, so to speak. This is what happens. This is what happens when you live this way. This is what happens when you live this way. Okay, so it's a bit cheesy. Pardon the pun. Sorry, love. She doesn't like my... But I'm a dad. I can get away with it. I think it helps us picture the essence of what's going on here. Let's get practical, because this is what James is known for, right? Let's get practical. So you're in the middle of a conflict with another uh, Christ follower, another person who believes and follows Jesus, and it's gotten out of hand. It could be your sibling, it's your spouse, it could be your colleague at the workplace, right? It could be someone in your life group. What do you do? What do you do as a believer? Well, let's look at these verses to help us take this journey of what to do. And, and the first is submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. We see that in the first part of, of, of uh, verse 7. And remember last week, James, James reminded the believers you're not friends with the world. You've been brought into friendship with God. So, so begin by submitting your life to him. What does that mean? Well, in all the emotion of conflict, in the heightened emotions of anger, uh, fear, jealousy, uh, shame, regret, blame, it's easy to lose our bearings, isn't it? We forget to be a Christian is to be the one to be someone who orders their life around God. To be one who orders their life around God. We, we, are, we are those who demonstrate the ways of his kingdom in every situation in our lives, right? But in the tumult of heightened emotion, it's easy to forget. So James, he's, he's bringing us back to the basics of Christian life. Bring your words, bring your actions under the authority and the will of Christ. We represent him and his kingdom through our words and our ways. 
even in the middle of conflict, especially in the middle of the mayhem. And the, these aren't just two people that are in isolation having a go at one another. No, no, we're in the company uniform, right? We're, we're driving the company car. We're on the clock. We're, we're part of something far larger than the emotions of the moment will allow us to see. We're representing God, right? We, we, so we, we calibrate, James is saying, we've got to recalibrate our perspective here. I am, you are, a child and a servant of God, representing his ways and words to another child of God. And under God, we are on the same team. And I need to be able to look at his or her father in the eyes when this conversation is over. So how do we do this? Well, let's get into the filling. Three ways to submit ourselves to God. The filling. Number one, resist the devil. We see that in the second part of verse seven. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, let's look at that last first part about resisting the devil. Let's not gloss over that. James is calling us to an active resistance, to oppose, or you could say withstand. But how? If all of this is supposed to be about humility, how does such a courageous, like, battle-ready stance even apply? I mean, we've, the problem is we've, we've got to look past at what humility, the word, has become to be known as in our world, right? I mean, today we call it shyness. We call it the uh, uh, lack of self-assertion uh, or meekness. But someone explained to me once that meekness in the Bible is like a wild horse that has been tamed. Meekness is a wild horse that has been tamed. It, it hasn't lost its strength. It's still able to be bold and courageous. So when we see in verse 7, resist the devil, we're told to go up against the most powerful being, the most powerful evil being. In other words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything. Be courageous. I mean, think about Moses, right? Moses called the most humble man on earth, goes to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he says, let my people go. Let my people go. Give up your labor force. Just, there's nothing in return here. We're just telling you to do this. Moses was courageous in doing this because he was humble. Because he was humble. Because he knew who he was. He was God's. But what, what does it look like then for us, for you and me, to resist the devil? Well, there are a few situations in life when the power of temptation is so massive. And conflict is one of them. Temptation is, is around us, and we, think that we th immediately think of lots of things about temptation, right? But have you ever considered conflict is actually a, ma is a major playing space, playing field for, for temptation to, to, to be rife? So when we're in conflict, those dangerous waters of temptation can lead us to tremendous damage in relationships. Tremendous. We could just right be on the edge and it could just turn to, to absolute turmoil. And the aim of the devil is to bring division. Separating God and us and dividing you and me in the body. So to resist the devil means to deliberately allow some emotions to pass before responding. To resist the devil means to be self-aware 
as to what the devil would encourage us to do in this situation and taking care not to do it. Coupled to this command, though, is a promise. He will flee from you. He will flee from you. He won't be able to hang around. As a result of that, that, that resistance, he won't be able to hang around. Temptation's power will relent, and you're not going to face a temptation, we are promised, that is beyond our ability to resist. We see that, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And 1 John 4, 4, like it, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, the evil spirits, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, the devil. So we are promised that if we resist the devil, he will flee. Now, the next part of the filling, in verse, verse 8, we see a second way to submit to God. Draw near to him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, let's draw near. We draw near to God, how? Through prayer, uh, through feeding ourselves in the words, the truth, meditating on it, hearing the word as James call it, calls it, you know, back in verse, that chapter 1, uh, verse 22, doing what it says, not just hearing it, but doing it. We do all we can to cultivate a heart that beats for the same thing that God's does. We do all we can to cultivate a heart that beats for the same thing that God's heart does. We draw near to God by seeking to live out his wisdom, by looking at passages like James and helping us understand to apply what that looks like to apply them in our lives. Control the tongue. Care for the poor. Reject worldliness. In these actions done in devotion to God, we are drawing nearer to Christ. We are. But in the second part of verse 8 as well, we see that we draw near God, near to God through repentance. Cleanse your hands, your, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, our hands are external and our hearts are internal, right? Let's look at this verse. James is using imagery drawn from Jewish practices. You know, when someone had become unclean, through the laws of cleanliness, the person would have to, to ceremonially wash in something called a mikvah, a pool of water. And it was this act of washing uh, away the uncleanliness that made one clean. It was, it was symbolic, an outward washing, symbolic of an inward purity. But James specifies that the washing of both hands and hearts, it's both our actions that need repentance as well as our internal desires, right? Where we talked about last week, it's where, where the conflict comes from, where it's sourced inside. Now, James's harsh language here of sinners, he's calling them sinners, right? Like he's not making any, you know, he's, he's saying it. He's just call, calling them out. He speaks to the seriousness. By saying sinners, he's speaking to the seriousness of this need to repent. And that stinger of double-minded, what about that? Well, it says that it's one thing to believe, it, to, to, to believe in truth of God's amazing grace. It's one to believe, thing to believe it, but that belief, it doesn't soak into our words and actions. If it doesn't do that, we're, we're, 
We're saying one thing and doing another, right? We're double-minded. Oh, but coupled with this command, coupled with this command to draw near to God is another promise. He will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. Do you see that the same phrase, draw near, is used to describe both our actions and God's response to those actions? Well, now, now we've got a scenario where the devil was fleeing and God is drawing near. Now, that's, that's something you and I would, would prefer, right? Like that's something we, that's an outcome, a new recipe for a new outcome we're excited about. And that's something we, we would hope for. But it, it, it takes a resisting of it, an active resistance of the devil and an active drawing near to God. Do you see how there's a depiction of being unstuck, becoming unstuck from the mire that is temptation to deal with conflict and our selfish desires and attitudes? We're getting there, hey? There's this other one more piece of the filling of this burger is, is, is to mourn our sinful conduct. Mourn our sinful conduct. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I mean, whoa, what's going on here? Well, instead of taking pride in their actions, which, which, which led to competition, to led to fighting, James is telling the people here to mourn the mess of their selfishness. Mourn it. Take a step out here and mourn what's going on here. This is so much more than just saying the right thing, right? Being shallow and, and just external actions, oh, just make the conflict go away. I'm just going to say the right thing and move on. No, 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 no. It's a cause to stop life as usual. No more laughter even. James is saying, hey, deliberately look at the destruction caused through your strife, through this conflict and experience this sense of remorse. Take time to s- remorse to, 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 to realize what's happening here. In our modern world of positivity and positive uh, emotions, we, we struggle with this. It's as if we've be, kind of become allergic to anything that is negative or causes us to be down. And, and in part because we live in a, a world that doesn't really have a category for sin. Uh, where the ultimate goal for life is, is personal happiness. But James reminds us that we live submitted to God, that there are times when we, we are caught up in sin, especially conflict, and, 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 and cause destruction in the lives of fellow humans, and this grieves God, and it should grieve us too. Sin is serious. One glance at the cross of Christ should remind us, Right? Sin harms not only other people, but our relationship with God. It cannot be that we just continue with business as usual. And and James is is saying to deliberately turn from joy, deliberately turn from laughter in these moments, uh, and instead embrace the weeping and the gloominess, the, the remorse of the moment. So we have to realize the evil of our sins. We we grieve them, we mourn their presence in our lives and and we come to God for cleansing. So this is, this is part of genuine repentance. You know, Paul, Paul in Corinthians, he calls it godly sorrow, godly grief. But can I say, just to be clear, it's, it's helpful to distinguish the difference between remorse for sin and shame, which are not 
the same. So James, let me be clear, is not advocating for shame. Shame is an identity marker that lies to us. It tells us that we are unlovable by God and that other, and others, unlovable by others because of, of, of what we've done. That's, that's not what's being said here. There, this plays out in the difference between conviction and condemnation. So shame and condemnation, they go hand in hand. Condemnation is the sense that I've done a terrible thing, therefore God has moved away from me. Now, this is not what James is communicating. However, remorse, remorse and conviction, oh, remorse and conviction of sin, they also go hand in hand. And, and conviction is a sense that I have done a terrible thing, but God has moved towards me with a way forward. This is James's plea to draw near to God who will draw near to us. So when we're in conflict, do we ask ourselves these things? What, what do I need to be repenting of in this situation? Do we ask ourselves this? What part of my behavior is grieving God? For what do I need for, sorry, for, do, for what do I need to receive grace from Christ? Hard questions to ask in the moment, I'll be honest. But what do I need to be repenting of, God? What, what part of my behavior is grieving you? Are we asking those questions? Three hard fillings of this burger, right? But so, so close to our hearts of what, what it means to submit to God. And then we've got this, this top part, right? This humble yourselves before the Lord. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. How do we humble ourselves? How, how does one humble themselves, them, himself, herself? Well, essentially, it's, it's moving from a, a, a position of pride to a posture of humility. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book. Uh, it's not as well known as his other works. Um, maybe it has something to do with his title, Thoughts on Revival. Maybe not one that you would pick out first on the, on the shelf, um, but, but it's, it's a quite a powerful one, he, he wrote. Um, and in it, he, he argues that the thing that kills spiritual vitality and snuffs out revival in the church more is spiritual pride. Community killer, spiritual vitality killer. And he lists th six things. And I, I'd love converted from sort of the old English into maybe something that we might be able to understand more. Um, I'd love to go through these. So go on this journey with me. Unfortunately, no slides, but, but um, I, you can look it up as well. It's, it's called um, Thoughts on Revival. And these are six things describing spiritual pride and contrasted with spiritual humility. First, pride. It makes you more aware of others' faults than your own. Humility. Let's stay in frame here. Humility makes you far more aware of your own faults than those of the other, of others. It's far more aware of your own faults. Second, pride. It leads you, when you speak of another's faults, to speak in... It means that when you... Pride. It, it, it leads us to quickly separate from people that you criticize or, or people who criticize you. You, you're either, you stick with people in difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. Fourth, a proud person is dogmatic and is sure about every point of belief. And proud people, they can't distinguish between major and minor points of belief because everything the proud person believes is major. They just hold it tight. You can't 
can't convince me otherwise, and I'm ready to fight for it. A humble person, though, is dogmatic and sure that above all, they are saved by grace. But they can also engage with others around minor points of, of belief with a soft heart. Well, fifth, a, a proud person either, either loves to confront because they love winning or they refuse to confront because they're afraid of losing. But a humble people confronts necessarily in a wise way, in an intentional way. And then sixthly, a proud person is often uh, unhappy and sorry for themselves, a self-pity. And this is because they are either so sure they, they know how life ought to go, or they are sure that they deserve a good life. But a humble person says, I, I, I deserve to be cast off, but only by God's grace am I living. I don't know what's best for me, a humble person says. Friends, this is the road to humility, moving from our naturally inclined posture of pride, becoming to being more aware of our own faults, to become uh, more slow to speak of others' faults, to stick with people through difficulty, uh, to be more flexible versus dogmatic, uh, to confront lovingly, not to win, but to heal. Having little to no self-pity rather than, than grumbling, by God's grace, we are living. And this is significant. This is life-changing stuff. How does it happen? How does life change happen? Together, in community. In community. The Bible is littered with references for this. In community, we get to honor one another, accept, bear with, uh, forgive, confess our sins to one another, encourage and challenge, um, admonish, confront, counsel, instruct, warn one another, stop being fake with one another. Romans 12.9, stop being fake with one another. We bear the burdens with one another. We share possessions. We submit to the needs of one another. It goes on. Real life is meeting together, doing life together. Let's do this, church, in life groups and with fellow believers at home and in the marketplace. Timothy Keller states that there are two things that we must know to be on the road to humility, and that's to know the enormity of God's love for you. Full stop. To know the enormity of God's love for you. And the second thing we must know to be on the road to humility is the upside-down principle that is the heart, at the heart of the universe. Humble yourselves, and you will be exalted. The first will be last. The last will be first. Lose your life, you will find it. Lay down your life for God and others. This is the beginning of true humility, an inner confidence of our worth to him. It enables us to have courage, to forgive, to lay down our life for others. Moses, that example, right? The way to have true power is to give it away and serve. The way to feel eternally great about yourself is to admit that you are hopeless. You are a helpless sinner and to repent. And to the degree that you and I believe that Jesus saved us, Jesus really saved us, that's the beginning of incredible courage and strength and the ability to lay down our lives for others. And that kind of humility, that creates community. So as we grow in humility, this, this ought to be the language of our hearts. Why should I be selfish if I'm full of real wealth 
in love? Why should I be defensive when all charges against me have been dismissed by their real judge? Why should I be offended when I have the love from the king of the universe? Why should I begrudge giving forgiveness when I'm already awash in Christ's forgiveness now? Humble ourselves before the Lord. Humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now I'd like us to pray. I I, I want us to sort of um, reflect. There's so much going on here and there's so much that maybe uh, we feel maybe overwhelmed or there's one thing that that, that stuck out. But I'd I'd love for us to just enter into a posture of prayer as we respond. Um, I have a few things. Let's, let's, Let's pray. You know, Father, today, today's word, it, it hinges on that, that word, therefore, that you give grace to the humble. So therefore, submit, submit yourselves to me. It's this promise of grace that we get to submit to you. It's on that plate of grace <laughs> that the humility burger can stand. I, and yet we confess that we are more prideful than humble at times. Our prayer of, of confession that I, I myself, gravitate towards prideful manners, prideful emotions, prideful uh, thoughts than what you're talking about here in James today. Pride says, I am my own. Maybe that's where, uh, maybe, maybe to give ourselves some language to help us identify what's going on here. Pride says, I'm a, I am my own. I call my shots. I want to be served, not serve. But God, we know that that's where all the war, all the racism, injustice, brokenness, that's where family breakdowns come from. But Jesus said, you, you said my life for yours. Not I said my life for yours. And by that, you committed the greatest act of humility. You left your power, you left your glory, you left your life behind and paid the penalty pay. And then you were lifted up. From a own to my life for yours. Let us do community, let us do life together as you would have us do demonstrated for in seeming constant conflict. Father, won't you in, in embrace us, meet us, and help us to heal, overcome, but also just confront in your way, God, in your wise ways. For those who may have grown, grown tired or otherwise just disenchanted with the whole idea of community, I can do this myself. I don't need... I don't need community. I don't need relationships. I, I, they're just too messy. Father, won't you redeem that 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 perspective? Won't you won't you uh, enlighten those of us who feel that way to to see what real community can be can be like, and that it is an expression of your love among each other. And then for those who are, of us who have freshly discovered this vitality of community, won't you just breathe breath, your breath of life into them and just breathe life into this church to be governed by your love, God, but be, be marked by this, this, 
this, this, uh, this distinctive of doing life together through thick and thin. Father, those are my prayers for this, this church and for us. And as we, as we sing, as we take time to reflect, maybe just to sit, whatever. Father, won't you do business with our hearts this morning as, as, we, as we let this soak in. Amen.